Good morning. Good morning. Or it's actually afternoon, but it should be morning because marble springing ahead. Are you guys getting enough sleep? No. Not really. Yeah. Too small a class to sleep in, too. Although, I don't know. There are people who slept a lot in the 18th century class last <laughs> really? fall. Yeah. You didn't notice? I guess you, you guys were sitting at the other end of the room. Yeah. Um, yeah. It kind of takes you over. Okay. Uh, last week on Ben Johnson. Um, how are your papers coming? Do they have to be, is 1250 the max, or is that? No. No. It's a guide. So you want 1250. As opposed to... Oh, you mean, I see. By max, you meant 1250 or fewer is what I'm hoping. Yes. <laughs> um, and how many fewer were you hoping? Oh, no, I don't know. I just, I'm running Johnson out. is great, and so is Dunn. I don't know which one is better. I love them both. Please give me an A. What would you say that? Would you give me an A for that? No. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. I'm doing women's constancy, but it's, like, hard because I, I don't know. It's not, I mean, I don't know what it's going to be. It's like, I'm at 500. I'm already, I've already kind of. Said everything there is to say. And Not really, but I'm like halfway through the poem already. It's short. What if you do it in blank verse? Can you lower <laughs> the word? No, if you do it in rhymed verse and the meter is not defective, it can be fewer. I once got a paper in uh, heroic couplets. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was pretty good. The problem is that people's ear for heroic couplets is not that great um, these days, so you really have to develop your ear and get the, um, the meter right. Um, not just the Ogden Nash rhymes. Um, Ogden Nash basically his comic poetry. If it rhymes, it doesn't matter what the meter looks like. It's um, so he has a poem that goes: um, I sit in my office at 644 Madison Avenue, and I say to myself, "You've a responsible job, haven't you?" Um, so it's funny, but not as funny as done. Um, <laughs> Although his great poem about the turtle, you must all know, right? No? Really? I bet you do. The turtle lives twixt plated decks that practically conceal its sex. I think it clever of the turtle in such a fix to be so fertile. <laughs> that, that's probably his most famous poem. Um, you are killing him with these questions. <laughs> I, don't, I just don't know. So I'm just dying up here. I'm <laughs> dying. It might, might be long enough. I just 1250, you know, by the time you get your PhD in English. Oh, by the time you get Yeah. What you'll find is, I mean, it's, it's one reason people hate reading literary criticism so much, is that no English professor can say anything in 1250 words. Like 1,250 words is the, clear, the throat-clearing part of something. Um, it's like if you say, try to say something in 1,250 words, what you'll basically say is, the novel I chose to address is Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. Oh, um, <laughs> Justy isn't here. He would know what that was from. Queer name, right? The book was actually not bad. Anyone know who that is? What that is? Yeah, I know. I did. I said I quoted it. I just love it so much. I quoted it in 18th century poetry too. No one? 
it's a cutaway on Family Guy from, oh. I think, Stewie saying, um, you're dumber than a Boston research paper. Um, and then that. So it would take way over 1,250 words for an English professor to say that um, he or she was going to address Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens and that it was a good book, even though Dickens had a strange name. Um, the queering of the name would be really important. Queer name, right? Um, so um, that's not to say pad. If you can really say everything you need to say in less than, fewer than, pardon me, fewer than 1,250 words, fine. Um, but um, so don't pad. But the idea is we used to say four pages or five pages or whatever, and then it turned out that people were really good at you know, getting eight words to a page. Um, and so now by doing it by word count, it gives you a slightly more um, accurate sense of how long it should be. So um, you know, if, if it's uh, plus or minus 250 words, it's not a big deal. Um, plus or minus 500 words starts looking like a big deal. Okay, what are we thinking of Johnson these days? You do like him. How come? Um, yeah, I like him. I'm enjoying reading him. Okay. Not as much, nearly as much as Dunn. Not nearly as much as Dunn. No. All right. Well, um, one of the interesting things I think that um, we read for today are a bunch of the interesting um, poems are the poems that are written in A Woman's Voice, um, which... Um, Dunn did as well, but there are um, probably more such poems by Johnson. Um, so if you look, for example, at um, I guess, let's see, af after the poems to, um, to Charis or Charis, um, there's um, on page 129, there's the musical strife in a pastoral dialogue where he and she are speaking, um, are having a kind of musical contest with each other. Um, and then after that, a poem, In the Person of Womankind, um, a song apologetic, and then another in defense of their inconstancy, a song, and then another, A Nymph's Passion. Um, and all three of those are um, from the point of view of a female speaker, um, and all of them are um, women who um, are real in some sense. Johnson conceives of as real, which is to say um, women who feel desire and who have opinions. And um, one of the, I think one of the nice um, lines about it is, um, let's see, um, in, um, in defense of their inconstancy, that's on page 130, just the first um, uh, stanza. Hang up those dull and envious fools that talk abroad of woman's change. We were not bred to sit on stools. Our proper virtue is to range. Take that away, you take our lives. We are no women then, but wives. Um, so the opposition between women and wives, I think, is a reasonably feminist opposition from a poet you wouldn't think was particularly feminist. Um, that is that um, from the point of view of a female speaker, what he's saying is um, if you 
make us into women who are not interested in everything you can be interested in as a human being, um, then you're turning us from real human beings, that is women, you're turning us into wives, that is the um, um, victims of um, patriarchal oppression and um, um, insistence on a place um, subordinate to the males um, whose wives they are, um, highly subordinated to the males whose wives they are. Um, so, you know, there are um, done poems like that, like, oh, I don't know, Woman's Constancy. Um, and um, I think it's, it's nice to see Johnson um, writing from that point of view. Um, I think that what, there are a couple of things um, for today and for um, Friday, which is our last Ann Johnson, to notice about him. One of them is that um, one great form of poetry in English, um, the sometimes um, what's considered the greatest short poem in English is Wordsworth's Ode, Intimations of Immortality from Recollections of Early Childhood. Um, do people know that, the Intimations Ode? There was a time, well, you shouldn't go one more day without having memorized it, really. Um, it begins, there was a time when every meadow, grove, and stream, the earth, and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. It is not now as it hath been of yore, turn wheresoe'er I may by night or day, the things that I have seen I now can see no more. That's the first stanza. And it's about the loss of a sense of belonging to the world, of seeing the world as, as apparelled in celestial light, the loss of your childhood vision of the world as exciting and new and wonderful and interesting and full of life, and therefore your childhood sense of yourself as wonderful and new and as exciting and interesting and full of life. Um, that poem is sometimes, it's usually called the Intimations Ode. Um, it's sometimes called Wordsworth's Great Ode. Um, and it's um, the central, certainly the most important single poem in English of the last 210 years, <laughs> since 1800, in other words, the last 214 years. Um, the poem that's been most influential and um, the poem that has really set the terms for um, all modern English poetry is the intimations ode. But if you know Keats's, can you give me titles with odes and um, with the word ode in them? Say in Keats. Ode on a Grecian urn, ode to a nightingale. Yep. Um, ode to melancholy. Okay, all Keats. Um, <coughs> other odes in English literature, not by Keats. Ode to solitude. Ode to solitude by. No. Um, Collins. Um, Ode to the West Wind by Shelley. Um, Tonight, although not the Ode Tonight, but it is an Ode. Um, so, oh, and then Ode to On the Extinction of the Venetian Republic. Um, the Ode is a form that's, it's an ancient Greek form. Um, and it's a poem of praise. Um, and from a poem of praise, it becomes a poem of, let's say, passionate utterance about the thing that it declares itself about, sometimes to the thing that it declares itself to. Um, the basic definition or the basic um, 
um, criterion for an ode, um, although odes don't need to do this, is they, they will often begin with the word O. Oh. A wild west wind, <coughs> thou breath of autumn's being, for example. Um, so ode is from a word meaning song, um, but it's um, the idea is that you address something passionately. Um, hence the ode to a nightingale, or the ode on melancholy, or the ode to psyche, or the ode on a Grecian urn. Um, the ode was introduced into English by Johnson. Um, and um, we're going to look at another ode of his for Friday, but um, the first ode um, in the book is on page 118, the ode to Sir William Sidney on his birthday. We, we don't have to read it, but the thing to notice about it <coughs> is that it's an, an irregular form, which is true in Greek also. Pindar um, is the great Greek poet, not the only, but the great, uh, great Greek poet of odes. Odes also belong to Greek tragedy. Um, choruses sing odes. But if you, well, just notice the form um, that the lines are of quite varying length. Now that the hearth is crowned with smiling fire, and some do drink and some do dance, some ring, some sing, and all do strive to advance the gladness higher, um, <clears throat> what you'll notice is that unlike most formal poetry, um, even the rhyming lines don't tend to be in the same, don't tend to be the same length. Um, what you can have, what Johnson does do, he's a huge experimentalist in form. Um, he'll sometimes have lines that will um, alternate between ten syllables and eight syllables, sometimes between eight and six <coughs> syllables, and so on. But here the alternation isn't predictable. Um, what happens is the rhymes are when the rhymes come. That is, the length of the lines is dictated by a kind of musical sense of the um, power or passion that's being expressed at that moment. So when you get some ring, some sing, um, what the poem, of course, is doing is ringing and singing um, and making that rhyme um, particularly punchy and powerful. Um, but what it, what's also going on there is that in the first stanza you have the scene being set. Now that the hearth is crowned with smiling fire, um, a long line, and some do drink and some do dance, a shorter line. So you have a pentameter line, then a tetrameter line, and then a monometric line, some ring, that is one foot, some sing, one foot. And all do strive to advance, so all do strive tadvance, um, trimeter, three feet, the gladness higher, two feet. Wherefore should I stand silent by, who not the least, both love the cause and authors of the feast? And then that concluding question manages to extend at greater length everything that came before it. I don't want to do a metrical analysis of the poem, which would require a lot of subtle um, discussion, but just notice the variation in line length. Um, that's a that's an introduction of a different kind of music into English poetry that you get from the ode. And Johnson's introduction of the ode into English was hugely influential um, to a whole strain of English poetry. After that, um, it it's a kind of beautiful irregularity, um, and really worth noticing. 
there. Let's take a look. I'd like to look at, um, if possible, two of his Horatian poems, two Penshurst and on inviting a friend to supper. But let's start by looking at um, the poem The Hourglass on page 132. What did you say? You like that one? I like Dunn. How come? I don't know. I, like, I thought it was very, it was, reminded me, not reminded me of Dunn, but it was very clever. Mm -hmm. it was, yeah. I liked it. Okay, so um, what's clever about it? I don't know, the way, like, you talk about, I don't know, I read it a couple days ago, um, like, we're, like, how we're a part of time, like, literally with the hourglass, like, we don't we'll go away, like, it's a nice image. Yeah. Like, I'm here forever, somehow, like, especially, yeah, forever, like, time, like, that was a really nice image. Okay, so, if you were looking at a Renaissance painting, if you were looking at a painting, in um, the year 1640, let's say, which is when this is published after Johnson's death. Um, and that painting contained an hourglass. What else would you expect to see in it? Skull. Uh-huh. Some turkey feathers. Some turkey feathers, yes. Okay, good. Maybe a mirror. Um, why? Not you. I know you know why. Why did Han come up with those things as what you would see in a painting with an hourglass in it? Well, skull, because we have skulls. <laughs> okay, so, yes. Well, <laughs> like a human being, like a, like a person dying, their body, I don't know. Yeah. Their bones are still there. Okay, so, but why, why would an hourglass ma immediately make you think of a skull? Because time runs out, I don't know. Yeah, because hourglasses are symbols of mortality. That is, the idea of an hourglass is it's a typical icon, um, a typical symbol that you would find in, um, in vanitas paintings, that is, paintings about human vanity, um, paintings which are reminders of um, the vanity of um, human life. An hourglass would be a typical implement to remind you that time is always running out. The very idea of time running out um, is an idea from an hourglass um, or from um, a timepiece that works through the disappearance, the gradual disappearance of something. In an hourglass, it's sand. Um, it can also be, and there are liquid, I'm sure you've seen liquid hourglasses. Um, those um, in Rome and in ancient Greece, they used liquid timekeepers. That is, um, they were called clepsydras, and it would be just drops of water running out, and that's how you would keep time. But the idea of something running out, of your running out of time, is running out of the sands of the hourglass. Um, so um, what Johnson is doing here is writing a little poem about the hourglass. Someone want to read it? Taylor? I knew you did. Great. I could tell. <laughs> the hourglass. Do but consider this small dust here running in the glass by Adam's moved. Could you believe that this the body was of one that loved and in his mistress's flame playing like a fly turned to cinders by her eye? Yes, and in death as life unblessed to have expressed even the ashes of lovers find no rest. Great, thank you. Um, so, small there, the note tells you, means fine. fine. I think small is a much better word than fine. <laughs> um, 
partly because it doesn't have the um, wrong connotation of <coughs> that's a good thing, fine as opposed to um, um, second rate, um, but also because small really gets the sense of insignificance. Um, do but consider this small dust here running in the glass. Who's it addressed to? Who's supposed to consider it? You, the reader. You, the reader. Okay. Um, or you, the addressee, or someone who is um, supposed to consider. I guess the question then is the question: Who is really questioning why? Worrying about that, worrying about the time running out. Or maybe not worrying about time running out. In other words, if the hourglass is is a um, symbol of vanity, um, the producer of that symbol the person who offers the symbol as something to meditate upon, to contemplate, um, is asking you to think of the vanity of your own life. Um, so do but consider this small dust here running in the glass by atoms moved. What does that mean? That can be a little puzzling. It's, it's clear once you understand it, but um, what do you think it means? Of nature, or yeah, no, it doesn't. <laughs> like Adams, is that talking about the sand? Like, is running because all the sand's moving? It's yeah. So like the word atom there doesn't mean what it means after um, the end of the 18th century, which is the smallest part of matter. Um, it sort of meant that in Greek philosophy, but um, it comes to mean simply very small particles. Um, anyone know literally what the word atom means in Greek? Yeah. Um, Tomein, T-O-M-E-I-N in Greek means, do you know? I'm terrible. No, I don't. <laughs> to cut. Okay. Um, and atom is the uncuttable. That's when something, if you cut something um, into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces, you get to the point where it can't be cut anymore, and that's the atomic, the uncuttable. Um, and so here it just means, again, um, the smallest, it means small particles. Um, people will talk about dust motes in sunlight as atoms or atomies um, of dust. So it just means little particles. So what by atoms move there means um, moving grain by grain. Um, so it's a much simpler <laughs> phrase than it seems. Um, it's not that somehow the, um, um, the, Electromagnetic force is pushing the atoms away through um, the polarization of um, <laughs> positive versus positive and negative versus negative. No, it just means it's falling grain by grain. So, do but consider this small dust here running in the glass by atoms moved. So look at this dust going through the hourglass grain by grain. Um, do it because as soon as I offer you an hourglass, you should think of your own encroaching death um, because an hourglass represents time. But he's asking you to consider the actual dust in the hourglass. Why the word dust? Is that what you would say was in an hourglass? What would you say? Sand. Sand, yeah. Um, I think most people would say sand, maybe powder. Um, why does he say dust? Yeah. Is it like a plan, though, like ashes to ashes? Yes. To dust? Yeah, which is what the poem really is. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Um, which is from where? 
Where's the Where's the phrase from? Yes, it is from the Bible. Is it exactly that? Um, I know it says like it's dust thou art to dust thou shalt return um, and I think actually it may be Rachel do you want to google it it might actually be um, the book of common prayer that that actual phrase comes in um, well Wikipedia says it's from an Anglican burial service okay alright so um, so it is from the book of common prayer has a verse which is actually yeah which is dust thou art not to dust thou shalt return mm-hmm. um so yeah, it's it's um, so from an Anglican um, burial service, presumably in the 16th century, which is when the Book of Common Prayer um, is published. Um, so the Book of Common Prayer. Do people know what the Book of Common Prayer is? Is that a familiar name? Okay. So when the very very brief version of this is that when the Anglican Church, which is uh, generally regarded as a Protestant. Um, uh, response to the Catholic Church was established in England first under the Henry VIII but then really settled is the word that's used by Queen Elizabeth um, when she became queen after the death of her brother and her sister um, then the Anglican Church the Protestant English Church came up with its own prayer book and the idea was that this was going to be spread throughout the kingdom so the Book of Common Prayer was a book that um, everyone used and was um, essentially what, what the um, worship of the Anglican Church um, was based on. And then when James became king of England, which he is um, um, after Elizabeth, um, the, the question of the adaptation of the Book of Common Prayer in Scotland became a huge issue and part of the uniting of the United Kingdom um, of England and Scotland um, under King James was making sure the same prayer book was used throughout the United Kingdom. So that prayer book is really important. Um, that prayer book um, is a kind of, um, if not constitution, at least um, founding document or con- constitutive document for the Anglican Church, um, and a controversial one. Um, there's stuff said in the Book of Common Prayer that the Puritans couldn't abide, um, and stuff said in the Book of Common Prayer that the Catholics couldn't abide. Um, but yeah, the Anglican service of, for the dead would be in the Book of Common Prayer. So, And it comes from dust thou art unto, unto dust thou shalt return. Here it is, um, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Um, so look then at this hourglass and look at the very thing that's measuring time in the hourglass. It's different from another um, vanitas symbol, which could just be a clock or a watch, um, which you'll also find. You'll find in Dali, for example, in Salvador Dali. Um, the, you know, the melting watches in Dali, those are allude. Did people know the painting I mean? famous painting of watches melting as they go over the edge of something. Um, those are allusions to vanitas symbols. The idea is um, maybe not so un-Ben Johnsonian an idea that um, the watches themselves melt. Um, they're not only keeping time, but they're subject to the very time that they're keeping. 
um, what happens to all things happens to watches. But nevertheless, a clock or a watch as a trope or symbol of vanity isn't quite the same thing for Johnson as an hourglass because an hourglass contains dust and doesn't only remind us of the fact that we will die and turn to dust, but it actually contains the very thing that we're going to turn into. Whereas you wouldn't look at a watch and say, oh my goodness, one day I'm going to be a watch spring. That'll be bad. Um, or a piece of quartz in modern watches. Um, but we will one day be dust. So um, do but consider this small dust here running in the glass by Adams moved. Could you believe that this, the body, was of one that loved? Um, so where is the dust in the hourglass from? A human body. From a human body, yeah. So that as Hamlet um, has said when he's considering um, the dust that um, might um, keep the wind away, that is that a, human, that a person dies and they turn to dust and then that dust is made into clay, which is used to um, um, seal up a hole in a wall. Um, Johnson, who was friends with Shakespeare, frenemies with Shakespeare, is, is, has a similar idea here, that the dust in the hourglass might be the re remains of a person who died. Um, what's the, um, what's happening in the form of those first six lines? Yeah, exactly. Um, if you look at it from far enough away or, or squunch up your eyes, enough, it can look like an hourglass or like two hourglasses, like one hourglass on top of another, um, which is to say like an hourglass which gets to the bottom and then you flip it and then it gets to the bottom again, um, which is what hourglasses do. So do but consider this small dust here running in the glass by atoms moved could you believe that this, the body, was of one that loved? Um, what's the rhyme scheme there? Um, so what's dust rhyming with? This kind of? Yeah, okay, this really kind of, yeah. It doesn't really rhyme with like, anything else. I was going to say there is no rhyme. Okay, so A, B, C, D, B, C. Okay, so certainly was and glass rhyme. There's no question about was and glass rhyming with each other. I mean, there is a question in our ear, but there's no question formally. That's a standard rhyme. Um, and um, we talked about this a little bit, but there are in English words that we consider as rhyming, um, and we hear, um, we don't hear, we feel that they rhyme even though they don't. Um, like uh, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry we talked about. Um, but also, interestingly enough, it's frequently the case that um, words like said will feel 
that they're rhyming even if they aren't because they feel like exactly the right word to be there. And that's what a rhyme is, a sense that that's exactly the right word to be there. And it's not that it's exact, I mean it is, but in some sense it might be better to say, it's not that it feels like exactly the right, way to be, right word to be there because it rhymes, but that what you want at the end of a line is exactly the right word for the end of a line. And rhyming is the most frequent way of showing that the word is exactly the right word, but it's not the only way. And um, therefore, words like said, like, um, remember me, he said. Um, said, what, what other word could it possibly be? So that tends frequently, if you look at the word said, you'll see that it doesn't rhyme. But most people won't notice it doesn't rhyme. Um, frequently, it does rhyme, and often with dead. Um, but most people w um, won't notice that it doesn't rhyme because it just it's the right word. And so what ends of lines really are about are the right word of which rhymes provide the most common um, instance. 99, in rhymed poetry, 99.9% .9 of the right words are rhyming words. But one-tenth of 1% 1 don't rhyme. Um, and then there are words that we think of as rhyming unless we look at them too closely, um, like was and glass. Um, it would have sounded more like a rhyme to Johnson than it does to us. To us, it sounds like an off rhyme. Um, but pronunciation has shifted. Um, in Johnson's day, it would have sounded, was and glass would have sounded, uh, would have been pronounced more alike than they are now. What would it sound like? Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. Well, probably was and glass. I don't know. I can't quite do it. Um, says, which we now, uh, says will rhyme in modern English with fez and pez, like, um, he's into his mouth, he stuck a pez, he looks at me then, and then he says, why don't you put on your fez? Um, I looked at him through my pince-nez um, and said, meh. Um, <laughs> he said, I don't want your mez. All right, never mind. Um, but um, in the 17th century, you didn't say says, you said says. Um, and there are dialects of English where people will still say that. Um, that is, for us, it's S-E-Z. That's why, actually, if you read um, um, dial uh, uh, dialect in American literature, the S-E-Z way of writing says is actually a dialectical. In the 19th century, that's a dialectical variation. It only becomes the common way of saying says in the 20th century. And a lot of, a lot of people in England will still say says. Um, Rhymes with a lot more words. Says or yeah. says? Says. Yeah, yeah. Um, amaze, bays, lays, days. Yeah. Um, so, but what that means is that we will, because we're so used to poetry where S A Y S rhymes with a word like days or bays or amaze or whatever, um, we tend to just accept that rhyme. Um, the same is true of was and glass here. So, um, so that, so. That's a way of saying it definitely rhymes, not because we hear it as a definite rhyme, but because it just rhymed in Johnson's day um, as something not that no one would have doubted. Same, with mo same probably with moved and loved. Um, it's, um, we hear them as different. Um, and we tend, people writing rhyming poetry now tend not to like to rhyme move and love or prove and love. We tend to think prove and move and love and dove. Um, but those were more common and more acceptable rhymes. 
um, in the 17th century. So those rhymes work. Glass, was, moved, loved. Um, what about this? Blessed. This and blessed? I don't know. It's an interesting question. Um, probably the most obvious thing definitely would be an off rhyme, which is this with glass and was. That is, what you have are the same consonants, um, and that consonantial ending is putting in the this with, with those words. But then dust is much harder. Um, it doesn't, on the one hand, it kind of feels like what Taylor said, that it rhymes with this. Um, and, I mean, does it, can you feel that? Can you make yourself feel that? That, it, that? that the pairing is something like dust with this, glass with was, moved with loved, and then fly with, that's an easy one. And then unblessed, expressed, rest. Those are all easy. Um, can you hear dust with rest? Do those go together? I hear dust with was. Oh, okay, that's nice. Um, again, that's probably our pronunciation, but, um, but yeah, that is nice. Dust with was. Um, Johnson's rhyme schemes really are um, intricate. Um, if they're not anarchic, they're at least intricate. Um, the same is true of Drink to Me Only with Thine Eyes. We didn't look at the rhyme scheme there, but it's a very intricate rhyme scheme. Um, here I think that um, if you can hear it, just listen to the poem again. Do but consider this small dust here running in the glass by atoms moved. Could you believe that this the body was of one that loved? Um, I think this small dust believe that this. They do go together. It's this dust and then that this. Um, it's like a scrambling of the same phonemes. And so it may be that on some level our brain is registering that as rhyme-like. Yeah, what were you going to say? I was going to say this might be so far-fetched. I might be being a little... But I'm thinking, like, are you are are we observing this on purpose? Like, does he do this because, like, if you take it word by word, like particle by particle, like piece of nice. sand or nice, dust, nice. like, it doesn't really make much. But once you put it all together and read it all together, and like a like a going down, like it's the flow of the hourglass. Yeah, and it sounds like it rhymes. Yeah, I mean, I would say that the very least you could say um, is that. Um, the words going through the poem, because when, when he says, do but consider this small dust, the this there means this poem as well. That is, look, here's a poem in the shape of an hourglass or of two hourglasses. Do but consider this small dust, this, this insignificant poem that I'm offering you, here running in the glass by Adam's move, that is moving word for word. Um, could you believe that this the body was of one that loved? Well, not the poem, no, but the poem is the expression of one that loved, yes. Um, if you think of a poem as something that we are to consider here after Johnson's death, that is, the poem is something printed, since Johnson is printing his own works, um, what he's saying is, look at this poem 
that you're now reading on the page. He's not present to us. It looks like the fiction of the poem is it's as though he's turning to someone with an hourglass and saying, look at this hourglass, Dupa, consider this small dust. But the reality is that he's writing a poem to be printed, in which case the reader, to go back not now, not the addressee, but the actual real reader, you guys, me, are asked to consider what's on the page in front of us, namely the hourglass in quotation marks. Um, and look at that. Can you believe that what we're reading now actually belonged to someone who loved? Here's a poem by a dead person, but he once loved, and this is what's left of him. So do but consider this small dust here running in the glass by atoms moved. Could you believe that this the body was of one that loved. And in his mistress flame, playing like a fly, turned to cinders by her eye. So um, what happens to the one that once loved? How does a fly turn to cinders? What kind of fly is he talking about? Do you know? what flies into flames in like every fifth poem of the 17th century? Moths, yeah. Um, hence the word butterfly, moth and butterfly. So yeah, the idea of, the, the word fly will apply to moths much more frequently in the 17th century than now. Um, but it remains in um, our word butterfly, um, which I know comes from flutters by, but still. Um, it's a flying insect. So. Um, playing like a fly in his mistress' flame, turned to cinders by her eyes. So that flame is the flame in her eyes, and he was attracted to those eyes, and like a moth, he burned to cinders. That is to what? Dust. Or ashes. Ashes, yeah. Um, yes. And in death, as life, unbless. So he's unblessed in his death as in his life. To have it expressed, even ashes of lovers find no rest. So he turned to cinders in his lover's eye, metaphorically. Um, everything went wrong, and um, the love that he had for her didn't work out. But it's not that, oh my god, she looked at me and now he's just a pile of dust. Uh, she only killed him metaphorically. But now he's unblessed in death as in life. So he's unblessed in life because she treats him cruelly. And he's unblessed in death because he has become a symbol to have it expressed. He's unblessed because what his task now is is to make sure that it is expressed that even ashes of lovers find no rest. That is, um, it is his task even after he dies, not to be buried in the ground, but to become the dust in an hourglass in order to express the fact that even ashes of lovers find no rest. So, um, 
the idea is something like look at this poem or look at this hourglass and it's not only that it re reminds us the time is short but it's actually made of the very thing that we will turn into so it is simultaneously timing the um, frittering away of our lives and um, timing when we ourselves will become time um, parts of a timepiece like the hourglass. Um, let's look, I assume it's in here, I didn't actually check, but um, since we're looking at the word dust and since we're getting to um, George Herbert, um, look at the poem on page 251 called Church Monuments. And um, here the church monuments are um, the, basically, the, he's talking about being in a churchyard. Um, a churchyard is where people are buried. When, when people are buried on, in consecrated land, it's because they're buried in churchyards, and it's the graveyard right outside of a church, consecrated land. So the hope is that you will be saved. Um, cemeteries are later um, innovations. There were no cemeteries at the time. Uh, you either got buried in a churchyard, or if you were in real trouble, you wouldn't be buried in hallowed land. But most people were buried in churchyards. Um, so Herbert, who's an Anglican priest, is walking through the churchyard and looking at the gravestones. That's what the church monuments are, are the gravestones. And um, thinking about what he sees. While that my soul repairs to her devotion, here I entomb my flesh. So he's thinking of um, how he should be thinking about God, and he's walking through the churchyard, and by doing it, he's entombing his flesh, not by actually going into a tomb, but by being in the churchyard as a place to think, as though the churchyard itself is a tomb. Why does he do it? That it betimes may take acquaintance of this heap of dust to which the blast of death's incessant motion, fed with the exhalation of our crimes, drives all at last. So he's um, saying, in order to meditate, in order to devote myself to thinking about God, I walk through the churchyard, in order that I can remind myself of this heap of dust, that is, all the dead people in the churchyard, um, this heap of dust to which the blast of death's incessant motion fed with the exhalation of our crimes drives all at last. All people are driven by the wind of death into this heap of dust because we are like dust in the wind. Um, drives all at last. Again, to show you something about what Herbert is doing and to pick up on the idea of the words themselves as being like dust, um, notice the internal rhymes there, which is something that um, Herbert really, really loves, to which the blast drives all at last. Do you see those? You can hear the rhythm there. You could relineate this poem. Um, this heap of dust to which the blast of death's incessant motion fed with the exhalation of our crimes drives all at last. Therefore, he goes on, I gladly 
entrust my body to this school that it may learn to spell his elements. So I'm trusting my body to the school of the churchyard um, that it may learn to spell his elements. What does that mean, to spell your elements? Do you know why it's called elementary school? Yeah, you're learning the elements of knowledge, and um, the, and um, to learn to spell your elements is basically to learn the letters. The elements of words are letters. So when you think of ele elements on the periodical table, um, on the periodic table, um, that comes from an older idea of elements as what as the basics that you learn in any subject, and in particular the basics of spelling. Um, Euclid's. Anyone know what Euclid's Great Geometry book was called? See, that wouldn't have been a hard guess. Um, if it was multiple choice, you would have gotten it, right? Um, no, you always think they're trying to trick you with that answer. Yeah. <laughs> but would I try to trick you? A, yes, B. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I don't know. All right. See, all of See, the above. See, this is a trick. <laughs> yes. All right. So, um, therefore, I gl gladly trust my body to this school that it may learn to spell his elements. So what else is elements meaning there? So you're learning about the fact that you're going to die. Things what you're made up of. Yes, that my body may learn what it's made up of, which is dust. Therefore, I gladly trust my body to this school, that it may learn to spell his elements and find his birth written in dusty heraldry and lines. That is, find that where I come from is can, can be found out just in what's carved on the gravestones. That is that um, all of this is what gives rise to the body, um, and all the and the body will simply give rise to these rise to these lines. Um, notice again the way the word dust plays throughout the poem. So that the first time you see the word dust, it's at the end of line three. But then what you get is dusty heraldry and lines, which dissolution sure doth best discern. That is, dissolving can see best. The fact that I am a dissolving person can see best. What will happen to me? What happens to all bodies? Comparing dust with dust and earth with earth. So um, I can learn what will happen to me, learn what life is, by doing what you do in a schoolroom, which is comparing things. But what do you compare in a graveyard? You compare dust with dust and earth with earth. These laugh at jet and marble, put for signs to sever the good fellowship of dust and spoil the meeting. So dust and earth laugh at jet and marble. Laugh at what, therefore? Gravestone. The gravestones. Yeah. So the dust laughs at the gravestones, which are put for signs to sever the good fellowship of dust. That is to try to keep people apart from each other when all of us turn into dust and all the dust becomes a good fellowship of dust mingling with dust, all our dust mingling. These great, these Dust and dust, 
earth and earth, laugh at jet and marble put for signs to sever the good fellowship of dust and spoil the meeting. What shall point out them when they shall bow and kneel and fall down flat to kiss those heaps which now they have in trust? So it'll point out the gravestones when the gravestones collapse over time. Um, when they shall bow and kneel and fall down flat to kiss those heaps which now they have in trust. Notice it's the same rhyme as before, dust with trust. Um, but notice again how that you get um, dust, comparing dust with dust and earth with earth, the way dust is invading the line everywhere. Dear flesh, while I do pray, learn here thy stem and true descent. That is where you come from, what you descend from. That when thou shalt grow fat and wanton in thy cravings, thou mayst know that flesh is but the glass which holds the dust that measures all our time, which also shall be crumbled into dust. So again, um, notice... Um, that there's the rhyme, grow and know, and true descent when thou shalt grow fat. Fat is rhyming with flat um, before, but there's that internal rhyme, grow with know. Um, stem rhyming with them. It's hard to tell how the rhymes in this poem. In fact, it's hard even to notice that it rhymes. But that's something that Herbert's an utter genius at, is the hyper-subtle use of rhyme. Um, so, dear flesh, learn your true descent so that when thou shalt grow fat and wanton in thy cravings, thou mayest know that flesh is but the glass um, which holds the dust that measures all our time. So what is our body? An hourglass. Yeah. Yeah, our body is made of glass. Um, and it holds the dust which measures all, all our time and like the gravestones which will collapse and turn into dust um, our flesh is the glass which holds the dust that measures all our time but which also shall be crumbled into dust so what else will be crumbled into dust? what's glass made of? sand yeah so the glass itself will turn into the very sand that it holds, the dust that it holds. Um, that's also a fascinating fact about hourglasses, that hourglasses contain sand, but they're also made of sand. And so Herbert's idea is that the glass itself, like the gravestones, will revert, crumble, erode into the sand from whence it came, dust, the glass comes from dust, and unto dust it shall return. Dust it is, and unto dust it shall return. Which also shall be crumbled into dust. And notice again that dust right in the middle of the line. That is, dust is certainly going through this poem like dust through an hourglass. Have you guys read, has anyone read um, the His Dark Materials trilogy, Philip Pullman? Um, part of his idea of dust is coming from Herbert. You know he's working on volume four? <laughs> oh, 
finally, some good literature. <laughs> yeah, he stopped doing anything public, um, and he... Sorry? I thought at its worst it was terrible, and at its best it was unbelievably wonderful. Um, I could totally live without the Mulefa, um, who just, they went, they went on and on and were of no interest. But um, the stuff in the land of the dead, in the world of the dead, I thought was amazing. Um, so at its best, it's, it's really amazing, I think. But uh, yeah, I think book four is going to be called The Book of Dust. Um, and dust is the whole thing that is being perverted by the um, Kansas story. Um, so, yeah. I just had a technical question. Yes. Um, why did Protestants still feel the need for consecrated land if they thought the body was, you know, corrupted and at death the soul would fly up to heaven anyways? Like, why still then the need for? It depends on on the branch of Protestantism. So um, what, as you know, what Dunn thinks and what Johnson thinks and various other people is that the body and the soul will reunite um, at the last judgment. And um, there's also, um, Milton was probably what's called a mortalist. Um, and what the mortalist thought was that um, it was a heresy. It was considered a heresy. But the mortalist believed that um, after death, the soul stayed um, inanimate until the last judgment. Um, so, the, so the question of, um, you know, whatever you're supposed to do with the body in this life while you're alive, you're supposed to treat it as um, a holy gift of God's. So you're, you're supposed to do after death as well. Um, I think the more radical Protestants, Protestants didn't care. Um, and um, didn't believe in consecrated land. This is going to come up in Herbert in questions that we may or may not spend time on. Um, on the Eucharist, which is, um, there's an argument, a huge argument, we talked about this already, but a huge argument about whether um, God is actually, whether there actually is transubstantiation, um, whether this really is the body of Christ um, and the blood of Christ that you're eating or drinking. Um, whether you should, um, whether you have to kneel to the Eucharist as something holy, um, or whether it's just a, um, just a, whether it is in fact um, a ritual um, to remember what God said rather than thinking that, that, the, um, um, that the host is holy. Um, there's a, uh, if you've read Tiz, anyone read, read Frank McCourt? Anyone know about Frank McCourt? He, he, he was, um, I think he won a Pulitzer Prize. He was a, um, quite a wonderful Irish writer, Irish-American writer. Who, yes, that was his uh, second book. My friend is married to his nephew. Really? Um, well, Tiz begins with, um, I think it's his first confirmation, and, um, so, which is to say he, he has the um, Eucharist for the first time and, and then the holy wine, and um, then he gets sick in his backyard and pukes, and he's really worried because he's afraid he's just thrown up God. He's just vomited God, um, and he asks the priest what to do, and um, he thinks the priest is utterly horrified, and it's only as an adult that he realizes that the priest is desperately trying not to burst out into laughter <laughs> at this hilarious situation, but he just sees the priest you know, red-faced and barely controlling himself. Um, so that wouldn't be an issue for Protestants. 
um, or for those who don't believe in transubstantiation. Um, Herbert seems to have begun by accepting transubstantiation, and then um, he um, decides not to, and his line is, um, if transubstantiation were true, then I would have to believe that you died for, for bread, um, not for humans. That is, you became a human. That's amazing. And then what? You became bread? I don't think so. Um, then, then I would think that thou died for wheat, not man, is the way he puts it. Um, so, you know, these are, these are huge issues. And the way Protestants tend to argue them um, is to say which seems, is to ask which is more consistent with what we know um, God did, which is to attempt to save us. And is it more consistent to think of, and some people will say it is, but is it more consistent to think that we're actually consuming the body of Christ? Um, or is it more consistent to think that we're reminded of, of his sacrifice at that moment? Um, so the idea is that you know what God did for us. One knows what God did for us. And then all the rituals have to be interpreted in the light of that knowledge um, as representing that. Um, so here, it's, it's, he's not particularly, I think, interested in the fact that this is consecrated land um, in church monuments. I don't think it matters much either way. Um, but um, it does matter that you be reminded what will happen to you, that his body be reminded what will happen to it, um, so that thou mayest know that flesh is but the glass which holds the dust that measures all our time, which also shall be crumbled into dust. Mark here below how tame these ashes are, how free from lust that thou mayst fit thyself against thy fall. So just notice that these ashes, this dust, is completely free from lust, and be ready for it, because you fit yourself, be ready for your own fall. Um, so I think that that those words, that idea, you know, um, Herbert died just after Johnson did. Um, he was basically a generation younger, but he um, only lived to 40 or to 39. Um, <clears throat> so it's not, and it's not cl quite clear when he wrote what. Um, he left a bunch of poems at his death, and um, when, he was, when he wrote them is all we know is they were before he died. Uh, we know something about when they were written, and this is probably an early-ish poem, um, because there is a manuscript of poems that he wrote. Um, that he revised. And so the poems that appear in that manuscript um, we know are earlier than the poems that don't. But that's basically all we know about when he wrote what. Um, so it's not at all clear that he got this from Johnson. Johnson certainly didn't get the idea from him. Um, but it's not at all clear that he got it from Johnson. But it's possible that he did um, from Johnson's Hourglass poem. OK. so. Um, at any rate, it's just worth noticing both what Herbert and what Johnson do with the form of the poem that's describing the movement of dust. It's as though the movement of the word dust through the poem, um, the poem itself is um, a representation of the thing that it represents, of the hourglass that it's representing. 
Um, okay, let's look at um, inviting a friend to supper. Um, partly because it's shorter than two pence first and similar enough. Um, but we'll, we won't read it closely, um, but just notice Johnson's urbanity. Um, and the same is true in two pensers. And there's, um, I wonder if we shouldn't go straight to two pensers. No, but here's inviting a friend to supper. Um, and um, it's quite a lovely invitation. Tonight, grave sir, both my poor house and I do equally desire your company. Um, so I really want you to come, and so does um, my house, um, my household. Not that we think us worthy such a guest, but that your worth will dignify our feast. Um, so we really want your company. It's not that we think that we're good enough for you, but that you'll make us better. So not that we think us worthy such a guest, but that your worth will dignify our feast with those that come, whose grace may make that seem something which else could hope for no esteem. So your grace may make our feast seem something to the other people who otherwise think that it's not a very interesting um, place to go for supper. It is the fair acceptance, sir, creates the entertainment perfect, not the Cates. So what makes entertainment um, a great thing is that um, you're welcomed, is how genuinely, how strongly we would welcome you, not the food that we're going to offer, um, but the love and welcome that we offer. Yet, but even though it's not the food, let me tell you about the food. Yet shall you have, to, rec to rectify your palate, an olive, capers, or some better salad, ushering the mutton with a short-legged hen, if we can get her, full of eggs. And then lemons and wine for sauce. To these, a coney is not to be despaired of for our money. A coney is a hare or a rabbit. Um, and though fowl now be scarce, yet there are clarks, the sky not falling, think we may have larks. So um, it's hard to get um, birds at this time of year. But there are people who think that we might be able to hunt for larks, which people ate. Um, I'll tell you of more, and lie, so you will come. Um, so I'll tell you we'll have other birds, of partridge, pheasant, woodcock, of which some may yet be there. Um, so maybe we actually will have um, some of that. And God wit, if we can, gnat, rail, and rough too, other kinds of birds. Howsoe'er my man shall read a piece of Virgil, Tacitus, Livy, or some better book to us, of which we'll speak our minds amidst our meat, and I'll profess no verses to repeat. So don't worry, I won't recite any of my own poetry, um, which I know might turn you off. To this, if aught appear which I not know of, that will the pastry, not my paper, show of. So if some verses do appear, um, it won't be my fault. Um, it'll be because um, the paper that they were written on will be used to make pies. Um, Dryden, uh, 60 or 70 years later, will talk about um, how neglected authors come to see Shadwell. Um, relics of pies and martyrs of the bum is what he says. 
That is, um, bits of poetry that are used either for baking pies in. We would now use parchment paper, but um, they just use scrap paper. Um, so relics of pies and martyrs of the bum, because we would now use toilet paper. But again, they use the paper of bad poems to wipe their butts. Um, martyrs of pies and relics of the bum, those are what happened to neglected authors. Um, so... Um, if you see some of my verses, it's only because they'll be used for baking pies. Um, to this, if what appears, which I not know of, that will the pastry, not my paper, show of. Digestive cheese and fruits, and fruit there sure will be, but that which most doth take my muse, and me, is a pure cup of rich canary wine, which is the mermaid's now, but shall be mine. So there'll be good drinking of which had Horace or Anacreon tasted their lives as do their lines till now had lasted. So if Horace or Anacreon, ancient poets, had tasted the kind of wine we can get now, they'd still be alive. Tobacco, nectar, or the thespian spring are all but Luther's beer to this I sing. So all the things that people like, they're nothing compared to the wine that I'm going to get. Of this we will sub free but moderately, and we will have no poolie or parrot by, um, so there won't be any parrot there to taunt us, um, nor shall our cups make any guilty men, but at our parting we shall be as when we innocently met, so we won't get too drunk, we'll just be happy. No simple word that shall be uttered at our mirthful board shall make us sad next morning, or affright the liberty that we'll enjoy tonight. Um, so, you know, there's not much to say about it except that it's just so lovely. Um, what he's offering in those rhymes is just such a lovely time. And the little maybe that you could say about it is that um, all the things that he's thinking of offering for that supper, um, the principle of thinking of offering them is that they rhyme with each other. And... Um, one thing that, one way of thinking about how rhymed poetry works, um, and this is an example of that, is that rhymes are given to you by language. Um, any language has its set of rhymes, and any modern language has a rhyming dictionary. Um, that is, if it's the kind of language which most modern languages are, where poems rhyme, where songs rhyme. Um, you can get rhyming dictionaries. Um, you can get them on the web. Um, and what, therefore, the creativity of a poet is, um, we think naively that what is hard about writing rhymed poetry is finding rhymes. Um, but you can find them in rhyming dictionaries. What's actually hard about rhymed poetry is making the rhymed words make sense when brought together. Um, that is, here are two words that rhyme randomly, um, days and says, let's say, or days and demays. Um, and they have nothing to do with each other. And what a poet then does is figures out some way to make them have something to do with each other. So here are a bunch of words that rhyme. Um, words like palate and salad, um, coney and money, clarks and larks, um, meat and repeat, um, mine and wine, and so on. Um, and what can invite them 
all into a single um, atmosphere? Well, a poem about inviting a friend to supper. That is, it's inviting the friend to supper is like inviting all the words that come together into these gracious rhymes in the poem on inviting a friend to supper. Okay, let's look briefly, because we're going to want to remember this um, when we look at Herrick, but look briefly at um, what is usually regarded as the first what's called a country house poem. This is page 97 to Penshurst. So Penshurst is a country house. If you guys watch Downton Abbey, that show would not exist um, except for to Penshurst. Um, that is, this is the first um, aesthetic appreciation of a country house as um, a place worth aesthetic appreciation, not just a nice place to relax, but a place that becomes itself an aesthetic object. Um, so what Lord Grit, do you guys watch Down the Abbey? Do you talk to your parents about it? Do they say, oh, you have to watch Down the Abbey? And you say, no, I'm just waiting for the new Veronica Mars movie? Um, <laughs> Yeah, the first couple of seasons probably enough. But you did watch two seasons of it. Okay, so what Lord Grantham sees himself as doing, and we're supposed to think he's so noble and wonderful and all that, um, for doing it, is he wants to preserve um, everything that Downton Abbey represents. The idea of the country house of gracious obligation to the country of being an aesthetic representation of um, what in the 19th century, in a 19th century poem, is going to be called the stately homes of England. And the idea is that um, living this way represents an ideal for and of life. So um, here is this poem to Penshurst. Thou art not Penshurst built to envious show of touch or marble. So you're not built of really fancy um, materials. Nor canst boast a row of polished pillars or a roof of gold. So you're not a palace. Um, that's the point. Um, the stately country house, the gracious country house, is not a palace. It's not meant to impress people with its absolute wealth. Thou hast no lantern <coughs> whereof tales are told, or stair, or courts, but stands an ancient pile, and these grudged at are reverenced the while. People like such things. Thou joyest in better marks of soil, of air, of wood, of water. Therein thou art fair. Thou hast thy walks for health as well as sport. Thy mount to which the dryads do resort. So places for um, just gracious walking. Where Pan and Bacchus their high feasts have made beneath the broad beach and the chestnut shade. That taller tree which of a nut was set at his great birth where all the muses met there in the rivet barker cut the names of many a sylvan taken with his flames. Um, so people have carved their names into your um, wood and carved their, their um, lovers' names. And thence the ruddy satyrs oft provoke the lighter fawns to reach thy lady's oak. Like hops too named of gamage thou hast there that never fails to serve thee seasoned deer. Um, Etc. It's just a, it's a very specific description of Penzers. I mean, read the footnotes for what the um, specifics are. He's talking about a real place with its real things in it. But it, it's the famous ending. Um, go to line uh, let's say line 84 where he's talking about um, um, 
the lady of the place, um, who therein reaped the just reward of her high housewifery to have her linen plate and all things nigh when she was far, and not a room but dressed as if it had expected such a guest. These Penshurst are thy praise, and yet not all, thy lady's noble, fruitful, chaste withal. His children thy great lord may call his own, a fortune in this age but rarely known. So um, this is a wise father who knows his own children. They are and have been taught religion, thence their gentler, gentler spirits have sucked innocence. Each morning even they are taught to pray with the whole household and may every day read in their virtuous parents' noble parts the mysteries of manners, arms, and arts. Now Penshurst, they that will proportion thee with other edifices, when they see those proud, ambitious heaps and nothing else, may say, their lords have built, but thy lord dwells. So there are other great houses, but the great thing about the lord of Penshurst is that this is a place where he dwells, and that everything is focusing on that word dwells at the end. Remember this poem when we look at um, Herrick's poem, The Harvest Home, um, which is a kind of response to this, and um, really a very, very powerful response. What is the poem? Harvest Home. Um, and um, we will talk, we'll have one more day on Johnson then um, on Friday. Huh. Is it, uh, yeah, it's Hawk, it's um, page 197. Hawk, oh, you don't have this book, but yeah. Um, I guess its full title is Hawk Cart or the Harvest Home.